Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran, joined by Antoinette Latouf this morning on a very special mm-hmm. occasion. It is The Briefing's second birthday today. Yep, super exciting. Although I was disappointed to come in today to see there is no fairy floss, no face painting, <laughs> no jumping castle, no lollipops, but it's it's okay. I hope, hopefully the day will get better. There is absolutely none of those things. They do not exist when you have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. But I just wanted to give a big shout out to you guys listening out there who've been listening with us for two years. Mm -hmm. It's been such a pleasure having you as our listeners and I thoroughly hope you'll continue to do so for our third and fourth and fifth and maybe tenth birthday. Mm -hmm. Tell your friends. What's on the show today? Zoe Daniels, who's the former ABC foreign correspondent. So she's worked as a journalist for more than 30 years. So why on earth would she now consider running for parliament? You really have to do something because... In 20 years' time, you might look back and think, well, I had an opportunity to do something and I didn't. And, you know, if everything's worse, then that's a real missed opportunity. Yeah, so Zoe's running as an independent in the Melbourne seat of Goldstein. She's running against um, the Coalition's Tim Wilson. He's her sort of main competitor, the incumbent, if you will. This is, of course, when Australia heads to the polls on May 21. So she's going to join us shortly. Before we get to Zoe, though, as always, the headlines. And today is Wednesday, April 20. New South Wales and Victoria are set to end the seven-day isolation rule with both states passing the peak of the latest Omicron wave. So this means household contacts of COVID-positive people won't have to stay at home. And that's according to nine newspapers. And these changes are expected by the end of the week. Yeah, so the reason for these changes is um, because in New South Wales, coronavirus infections have dropped pretty significantly from 20,000 daily cases. This was just two weeks ago to... 10,000 yesterday. Although, Jan, I will say we've got to take those figures with a grain of salt. I mean, it's welcome news. The, the scrapping the isolation will no doubt be welcomed by many. But because those figures expect people to self-report if they've bothered testing at all. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, it's a, it's a similar case in Victoria as well. I know the Premier, Dan Andrews, there says that you know, he believes the Omicron peak has passed as well. There were 9,000 um, cases recorded there yesterday. The seven-day average, very pleasingly, is coming down. So that says to me, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not the chief health officer, but it says to me that the peak is has come and come and gone. And this is as both states have been under increasing pressure to scrap the rules. So businesses and unions um, have been calling for the isolation rules to be dropped. And it's not often that businesses and unions are on the same side with labour shortages continue to wreak havoc on the economy. And I think probably what will come next, Jan, in the United States, for example, if you actually have COVID, you only need to stay home for five days as opposed to the seven-day rule in Australia. Yeah. I mean, just going back to what you were saying about taking these figures with a pinch of salt, they sound, you know, it's positive that we've passed the Omicron wave in Australia's two biggest states. I will say that our COVID death toll for this year alone has surpassed both 2020 and 2021 put together. Mm. So 4,547 people have died of COVID just this year to date, and that's compared to 2,239 over the last two years. So it's still there. Mm. It might feel like we're coming out of it and we can sort of live normally. It is still there. And as someone who's like a six-month prego person... Mm -hmm. I must say I am sort of acutely aware of it as well because I just don't want to get it around my due date, please. Yeah, fair enough. And to the election where scare tactics from both sides of politics seem to have intensified this week. So Labor and the Coalition 
Oh, they've spent the last 24 hours just trading barbs, pointing fingers, accusing each other of running scare campaigns. So the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has attacked Labor for claiming pensioners would be forced onto cashless welfare cards should the coalition be re-elected. The Labor Party is ringing up people, sending out brochures, writing to pensioners, scaring them that there'd be some suggestion that our government would be applying the debit card to pensioners. It's just simply not true. And then it was Labor's turn to accuse the coalition of spreading misinformation. The shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, basically was outraged by claims made by the energy minister, Angus Taylor, that within the next decade, power prices would rise by $560 a year. He says that's just absolutely not true. Angus Taylor has added fuel to the bin fire of lies that this government tells about renewable energy. These are dodgy numbers from a dodgy minister in a dodgy government. All the while, both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese have said they won't be doing deals with independents as they prepare for their first debate to be held in Brisbane tonight. Mm. In the meantime, um, other politics news, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne says she's very deeply disappointed. This is after China and the Solomon Islands signed a very controversial security agreement that Australia was really hoping they wouldn't sign, but it looks like they've gone from, from pencil to pen on that agreement. It's been signed with with the details being a little bit fuzzy. Not quite sure if the final agreement is the same as the draft agreement um, that was made public a few weeks ago. Obviously, Australia fears that this could mean China will have military presence a mere 2,000 kilometres away from our Aussie coastline. But Jan, just taking a step back to you know, the misinformation and, and the scare campaigns and you're lying, no, you're lying. And, you know, there's a potential that both camps are lying. The thing on misinformation, that even when it has been disproven, even when uh, it's ba- it's balanced out by, oh, that was information from 2020, that's not our policy, it's stuck. That's mm. how information works. People are confused, people are scared and it sticks. So even now moving forward, as the record gets corrected, as it's disproven, it's been effective. Yeah. I mean, there is that old saying that a lie flies around the world and the truth comes limping after. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've seen an ad that might be a little bit of a scare campaign or might be a bit misleading, that's the thing that you're probably going to remember, even though it gets taken down Absolutely. a week or two weeks later. Yeah. Heading overseas now and Russia's massive assault on Ukraine to take the nation's eastern regions has intensified. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says that the battle for Donbass has begun. A very large part of the entire Russian army is now focused on this offensive. No matter how many Russian soldiers are driven there, we will fight. We will defend ourselves. We will do it daily. We will not give up anything Ukrainian. So at least 1,200 rockets have been fired in the last 24 hours alone along the 480-kilometre front line in the Donbass and Kharkiv regions. That's according to Moscow. And Russian forces have seized the city of Kremina in the Donbass region. It's the first city captured in the Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine. So this is a city of uh, more than 18,000 people. It's about 560 kilometres south of the capital, Kiev. Meanwhile, the strategic port city of Mariupol, which we've heard a lot about, there's been some horrible atrocities happening there. That city is yet to fall. So there's Ukrainian troops continuing to hold out in um, in what we believe to be a steelworks plant in the area. Ben Robert Smith's lawyers have called their first witness as the defamation case rolls into its 12th week. 
A former elite soldier and colleague of the war veteran known as Person 5 has told court he never killed anyone taken prisoner in Afghanistan. Yeah, so this is disputing information that the court heard a few weeks back that during a 2009 mission at a Taliban compound, there were two Afghan men hiding inside a secret tunnel. Um, The court heard that one of them was allegedly executed at Robert Smith's direction. Person 5 officially ordered the killing. Again, this is all alleged, and he ordered it to, quote-unquote, blood a rookie, which is a term used uh, to describe when someone records their first kill during a mission. So so the rookie is in reference to uh, an extra person who was there known as Person 4. But Person 5 and Robert Smith have both said no one was in the tunnel. Person 5 also said the first time he heard the term blood the rookie was when he read it in the newspaper. Robert Smith is suing nine newspapers for defamation over 2018 stories that he claims contained false allegations. And after much speculation and speculating we did about what Ash Barty's next venture was going to be, I think now we know, because she's picked up the golf clubs. And she's going to be participating in a golf tournament known as the Icon Series Exhibition event. This is happening in New Jersey in the United States in June. She's moving to golf. I can't believe it. You know, there's only one thing I dislike more than a really talented sports person, given that, you know, I only ever got green participation ribbons at every sports (laughs) carnival at school, is when they're talented at more than one sport. Oh, it's awful. She's also very talented at cricket as well. She she played cricket at a very high level before shifting to tennis and just casually winning a few grand slams. And a nice person. It's awful. Yeah. So she apparently had sort of a golf session um, with a well-known English golfer called Ian Poulter um, when she was in America for the US Open last year. And this is according to nine papers. Ian Poulter, very wowed by her talent. Mm-hmm. So probably they're kind of putting the hard word on her. Also her fiancé, he's also very into golf. He's a PGA trainee professional. Um, that's sort of a pathway into the sport. So I reckon he's probably had a word. Mm-hmm. I said, nah, leave tennis. <laughs> Play golf, mate. Okay, babe, I will. Um, It's after the 25-year-old announced her shock retirement from tennis following her historic win at the Australian Open. I'll be interested to see how this plays out, Jan. So obviously uh, some very well-known elite athletes who've tried their hand at something else hasn't necessarily gone that well for them. Like there was Michael Jordan switched to baseball, you know, which made the Mm. headlines but wasn't necessarily that effective. And Sonny Bill Williams from NRL to boxing. And then there can be us who are good at no sports. <laughs> All right, that is it from us this morning. We've got Katrina and Annika chatting with Zoe Daniels coming up next. Hey, it's an all-ladies panel. Hi, guys. Katrina Blowers and Annika Smithhurst with you. Now, Annika is someone who covers federal politics for a living. I'm sure you're often asked... Who on earth would want to throw their hat into the ring and do that job? I think we so often criticise from the sidelines, but when it comes to any of us actually stepping up to the plate with all that media scrutiny, the the mudslinging between the parties and even that sort of factional infighting, God, what a stressful job. It does not look appealing at all. It really isn't. And look, I'm not one to defend politicians, although I have written a column about this before that most of them, there's about 220 federal MPs, senators and lower house MPs, and most of them are actually nice people. They've got their heart in the right place. (laughs) They work hard, 
Uh, not all of them, that's definitely for sure. But the amount of scrutiny, the time away from your family, it is really tough, let alone putting your hand up from the outside because most of us have jobs. You'd have to quit your job. You show your hand, what side you support. You know, you, you're asked tough questions and it could all be for nothing. Not everybody wins on election day. So it is a really big thing to decide to run for politics. Well, a person who has made that decision is a name that you guys might be familiar with, and that is Zoe Daniel. She spent 30 years as a journo, many of them as a foreign correspondent for the ABC. She describes herself as a swinging voter who felt really let down after voting for Malcolm Turnbull back in 2016, thinking he was going to bring about climate reform. This election campaign, she's stepping forward as an independent in the Melbourne seat of Goldstein, usually a very safe coalition seat, but against the odds, she's making some noise and is actually looking like she's going to challenge the sitting MP, Tim Wilson. So why would a former ABC foreign correspondent enter the dog-eat-dog world of politics? And can one person really make a difference? Zoe Daniel, welcome to the briefing. I guess first up, what made you want to run? Well, thank you for having me. I didn't really want to run, I think is the first answer. I certainly would never have run for one of the major parties and I did not have going into politics on my radar, but I was asked by a community organisation called the Voices of Goldstein, which is a grassroots group of concerned citizens, if I would consider standing as an independent. And I thought about it really hard for a couple of months and talked to my family and I guess compared my priorities and concerns to those of the group. And in the end, I realised that their key concerns were very similar to mine and those were around forward-thinking and economically-focused climate policy, particularly for the future of us and our children, and also integrity and getting honesty back into politics and equality and safety for women. So there were some real synergies in my key priorities and theirs, and that's why I decided to do it. And also because it's a grassroots concept, it's politics done differently, and it's really underpinned by genuine engagement with community, which is very different, I think, to where our major parties have got to. There does seem to be a string of women standing this year in seats, independence, Allegra Spender, Mon for Kuyong. What do you think it is that has made sort of women in the middle of their career or, you know, otherwise professional women have a huge change of heart and decide to go down this path and really put themselves out there. It's quite a risky thing to do, but it seems like there's almost an uprising. What do you put that down to? Well, obviously the last few years have exposed all sorts of issues for women working in Parliament House, but also the entrenched harassment that women face in the workforce in Australia. And I think the Me Too movement as well, more broadly internationally, has really put a spotlight on those sorts of issues for me, and I can only speak for myself, but there was that feeling of, oh, do I really want to step into what is innately a toxic environment? And the default answer is no. But then when you think about it the other way, you can say, well, it's better to get into the room and try and change things from the inside and have an impact. And the more women you get around the table, the more different perspectives you're going to have and the more impact that will have. And it's not about taking something away. It's about bringing something new and adding something. So I think that perhaps many of the women are motivated by that kind of position. But I also do think that, as I said, you know, I never intended to go into politics, but I was kind of 
keeping an eye on this Voices of Independent movement, thinking, oh, that looks interesting. And then when you see strong women putting their names forward for that, then it, it kind of validates that idea a little bit that you think, well, others are doing it. I can do it too. So maybe that there's something of it feeding on itself. I'd love to know a little bit about the perception versus the reality. I've covered a few campaigns, so I think I know what it might be like to, to enter politics. But again, you, you never really know the whole story. I have kids like you. I've got a partner. I've thought about maybe putting my money where my mouth is because I get so frustrated from the sidelines as well. But my partner always says to me, no way would I ever want you to do that. It would have such an impact on family life. Did you have those conversations with your partner and what's it actually been like? Well, certainly my partner had those concerns and I think that that was partly born from the fact that I'd been a foreign correspondent for the best part of 15 years. So I'd travelled a lot. I spent a lot of time away from him and my children and, and that was the biggest barrier for me as well, just having to spend more time away and, and to be really sort of snowed under with work and for, for work to, again, overtake everything. But my children, who are now 13 and 15, are highly politically aware, perhaps because of the amount of time they've spent overseas. Uh, they were in the US for the election of Donald Trump and the Trump administration, for example. They were in Thailand during a, a period of serious political unrest in Bangkok. So they look at those things through a different lens. They've been very concerned about the absence of strong climate policy and they, especially my 15-year-old, were really advocating for me to do it. Much as there was going to be a sacrifice for the family, their view was, well, someone's got to do something, Mum, and you can get in there and do something and you really have to do something because... In 20 years' time, you might look back and think, well, I had an opportunity to do something and I didn't. And, you know, if everything's worse, then that's a real missed opportunity. So the kids have been really supportive. I do think that the level of nastiness, the level of disinformation and untruth and the level of attempt to perform character assassination is at another level to what my expectations were even though my expectations were very low about what the mm. behaviour might look like. That's a reality check. Um, but I think it's also a reflection of the fact that I can't speak for the other independents, but in my case, I'm a real threat. It does seem like you are actually one of the independents that really could end up in Canberra, you know, in only a matter of weeks' time. Have you turned your mind to, I guess, a few things? One, should it be a minority government who you would support or what sort of policy negotiations you might have? And following on from that, as an independent, it's kind of hard to campaign because you can't promise policies. You can promise what you'll advocate for, but you, as an independent, don't have the numbers to sort of introduce legislation and, and with a party behind you. So with that in mind, should you get there, what do you hope to deliver and would you work with both sides of government for that? My position is, well, you can't make a decision on something when, when the Australian public haven't even voted. You know, we don't know what the arithmetic looks like. We don't know what the numbers look like. And that's a negotiation for the time. And, yes, I would negotiate with both sides. I'm a lifelong swinging voter. I can see costs and benefits in both sides, but also I think it's very self-evident what I'm standing on. And my priorities, as I've said, are climate, integrity, prosperity and equality. And those things would need to be the priorities in any negotiation uh, with both sides. So there's that. 
I do think that the Prime Minister's made it more difficult for himself in regard to an integrity commission because that's a very central pillar for me and for my community because, you know, it's not really about what I think. It's about what the people of Goldstein think. So those things that I've listed are their priorities. So it would be up to the two men seeking to be Prime Minister to say, okay, well, what are we going to do about these things? Because they would be the things on which I'm elected. The broader issue of, well, what can you do as an independent? I agree with you in the sense that you're not going to be like a major party politician where you have off-the-shelf policies that have been developed over decades and you just sort of wrote learn them and then when things are put up, you just give them the tick and vote them through. So I have more detailed policies on my particular priority areas and then I have principles and things that are underpinned by interactions with my community on other issues. But as an independent, the main role, uh, apart from potentially pushing through private members' bills, is holding the government to account, and that is the government of the day. So every vote's a conscience vote. Every piece of legislation and policy will be looked at on its merits. Finally, Zoe, what advice would you have for young people considering a career in politics? Look, I think it's to do with having the courage of your convictions it's very difficult to be brave and step forward and to put forward your opinions and put yourself out there and be accountable for those views. But the uplifting or energising part of it from me, especially with the community independent model, is the fact that it's the community that's lifting you up. It's the community that's taking you forward We have thousands of people signed up to our campaign and more than a 1,000 active volunteers who are so positive, optimistic, excited and full of energy about what we can do. And that's what actually keeps you moving forward. The whole ethos of this campaign is stop looking backwards, stop being negative, stop worrying about what we're going to lose if we have to change our position on things and start looking forward and think what can we gain and be optimistic about the future. And I really encourage young people to look at it through that prism rather than feeling negative and anxious. Take action and look forward. That's Zoe Daniel, who's running as an independent for the Melbourne seat of Goldstein. Annika, one thing that really struck me is the advantage she has as a former broadcast journalist of being able to really articulate her message. Also, her name would be familiar to many people. Does that make a difference when people recognise your name? Name recognition is huge. And it's interesting you say the journo thing because there is a lot of formal journos in Parliament. Um, Darren Chester, I can think of Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull. They both wrote for different publications at certain times. Maxine McHugh. I think it helps. You've got the confidence, you understand it. Uh, Often the presentation skills doesn't always protect you from every question. But I think it, it will help her having a profile, but never underestimate how difficult it is for independence. Like back in the 90s and 80s even, about 80 to 90% of people voted for the major parties. Now that's slipping, but we still do find that on election day, about 70% of people go in and vote for either the coalition or Labor. So you're really trying to convince people that are often welded onto one side. But it does look like she is actually making some noise there and could be one of the more successful independents on voting day. Yeah, this is turning into a really juicy campaign to watch. Okay, that is it for our episode today. Our episode on our second birthday. We're going to head out of here and celebrate. Coming up tomorrow, we're heading to Paris 
and looking at what's going on with the French election. It's a very interesting one. Catch you soon. Listener.